Hi everybody, and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us, and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Before we introduce today's guest, we'd like to thank you for the ratings and reviews that you've provided us over the past two weeks. It's always great for us to hear that people are enjoying and taking value from the things that are being said in the podcasts. If you are enjoying what's taking place and haven't already left a review, please do so on whatever listening platform you use. Like we said, it's always great to get feedback from people that are listening in. And if you want to get hold of us again, we're available on Twitter at Gold Dust podcast and on our website at www.thegolddustcoach.com. Now to introduce today's guest. We've got on Chris Brindley, MBE. Chris is currently the chair for the Rugby League World Cup in 2021. He's also an elite sports business mentor for the EAM program with the Premier League and he's held multiple business positions in several different companies in the UK. Along with being an MBE, Chris's honours and awards are extensive. He's been named the UK's non-executive director of the year, Britain's best boss, and much more. Listen in to hear what Chris has to say about how he's helped create high-performing environments in many different fields. Well, welcome, Chris. Uh, it's great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm really good, thanks, Keith. And uh, it's great to be here. And hello, David. So, Chris, or Chris Brindley, MBE, should I say? Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that first and foremost. You actually received an MBE from Prince William in 2018. What was it that you were doing to achieve this prestigious award? Look, I, I, I was uh, humbled and uh, totally surprised uh, when, I, when I got my letter through the post. Uh, it was down to services for sport. Uh, I've chaired a sports charity in Greater Manchester called Greater Sport. England's got 49 county sports partnerships or active partnerships, as they're now known. And I've chaired that for, for 10 years. Uh, I've been working with the local Manchester County Football Association uh, as their non-exec uh, director for eight years and I've been working uh, with uh, three Olympians Steve Parry, Beth Tweddle and Beck Adlington um, to, when they retired from their uh, sports to ha- actually get more people doing uh, swimming and gymnastics and also supported uh, Switch to Play which was uh, an athlete transition charity and I'm still a trustee of that charity so, so I, I really just wanted to put something back into sport because Sport has been very good to me, uh, and I was absolutely privileged. The, the only sad bit, uh, David, was sadly my mum uh, uh, passed away a number of years ago. Uh, she, she loved the royal family, and she would have been great to have by my side at the palace. But uh, I know she was there with me uh, anyway on the day uh, in her own special way. But yeah, privileged to get it, uh, but it's not why I did it. Uh, I, I wanted to make a positive difference to other people's lives. Um, and, and, and that was uh, obviously a lovely, lovely moment. Yeah, and you've mentioned in there, Chris, about your mum. So I'm going to 
take it back now. So for you as a young boy, you were brought up in a council flat in Manchester. Yeah, I mean, I was blessed with the most wonderful mum. And she, she, she saw me through a lot. Um, my, my father walked out on me, my brother and my mother. We lived in a two-bedroom council flat uh, in a tough part of Manchester. Uh, and, and money was tight. You know, we were, we were dressed out of jumble sale clothes or my mum got what was then known as provident vouchers to literally pay for school uniform. Um, and it was tough. Um, you know, I wasn't particularly gifted at school. Uh, I didn't get on particularly well with my stepfather when he arrived. Um, but one thing I did is that when I, when I crossed that white line to play sport, whether that was football, cricket, uh, athletics, anything really, it just... I just loved being on the sporting field. It took my mind away from everything. And things started to change when I got to the age of 13 because that was the time when you could get a job. So I went out there, did a paper round. You know, I've chopped rhubarb for a living. I've collected strawberries, delivered potatoes. I've done anything because I wanted to buy, you know, a pair of football boots that were Puma or Adidas and not Clark's Attackers. So it was tough. I wasn't particularly gifted at school, but it was just sport and my mum. Um, my mum taught me some amazing values. She taught me the importance of helping others. So if I ever was going to the shops with my mum, she made me knock on uh, all the elderly people in our avenue. She made me knock on the door and say, do their shopping for them. Because by the time that they could get the coat on, I probably could run to the shops and run back. So it was a, it was a tough council state upbringing, but it was, uh, I'm blessed because it taught me so much. So I, I'm very grateful for it. So those good values that have been bestowed upon you by your mum and the, your upbringing. Uh, I know we had a, a brief conversation during the week, Chris, where you'd spoke very fondly about memories of your primary school and secondary school and how a couple of teachers helped shape who you are today. What were some of the key fundamental lessons they taught you? Well, I think between my mum, Ray Woods, who was my primary school PE teacher, uh, Colin Crofts uh, and Mike Ryder. Colin was the head teacher, Mike was the deputy head. Um, it's all taught me values. They, Ray Woods would talk about uh, sport being a metaphor for, for life. And he said, look, just try to learn some things through, through sport. And, and if you think about it, you know, he, he, underst he understood and explained to me the importance of being part of a team and that teams that work towards a common goal can achieve great things. He taught me about the importance of preparation. So, you know, he'd be telling me at the age of, you know, eight or nine about Lombardi time, uh, about you don't just turn up, you get there early, you prepare, you should you know, prepare your kit properly. You, you know, we used to put dubbing on our boots. I mean, somebody's going to have to look up dubbing on Google. Um, but he made, he made preparation really important. He also taught me the importance of winning gracefully. I remember scoring a goal and running around with my arm in the air. And he says, Chris, don't behave like a Red Indian. He said, respect your opposition. You've scored a goal, you've done well, but respect the opposition. Um, you know, and all the bit around, uh, if we lost, uh, we, we didn't get each other's throats. He talked about sitting down and exploring, how could we be better next time? Um, and then Mr. Crofts just gave me some great leadership opportunities. I wasn't particularly good at school academically, I really wasn't. But he gave me the opportunity to lead the school team. Uh, we had a house system for sports and I was house captain. So again, I learned to, to, to understand the importance of decision making, uh, understand communication. 
You know, some some people were in the team, some weren't. I I had to learn how to tell them um, and talk about the positives, um, even though people were disappointed, and understand you know the importance of giving everybody a chance. I mean, I I, I was learning leadership from some great teachers and mentors uh, before I joined work. Um, and my mum used to tell me that. But ultimately, no one was ever better than me and I was never any better than anyone else. And, you know, it was all about serving others and respecting others and being equal. Uh, and, and, and that just gave me such a strong foundation for being a decent human being. Um, and it's the values of sport, as I say, that, again, I'm truly thankful for. There's some wonderful foundations have been built, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, in, in 1982... You started to work, you, you, you worked at NatWest, NatWest Bank. What was your role? Uh, what did you start off doing? Uh, 3rd of August 1982, Keith. Uh, NatWest Stretford, 28 King Street. Uh, unbelievable memory. Uh, uh, the lowest job you could do, you'd started as a junior. And, and your job in the morning was to brew up for every other member of staff. There's about 26 of them. So I was a tea boy initially. Then the first thing we did was we had to print checkbooks. We printed checkbooks manually uh, in each branch using a machine. And uh, I always remember uh, asking the admin manager, what, what, what's, the, what's the record for number of checkbooks printed in a day? And he turned around and said, I haven't got a clue. Why do you want to know? I says, because I want to beat it. You know, that, that bit about being better today than I was tomorrow, to, to setting new standards have been instilled in me in sport. And I took it into my first day uh, at NatWest. And, you know, other things was about finishing things earlier, getting things balanced, just getting, a, getting it right first time. And I always remember about two weeks in, um, the admin manager looked at me and he just said, you're going to make a bank manager one day, son. Mm -hmm. and, and that for me meant... meant everything you know that feedback and it was it explained to me my work my work ethic uh my my desire to help others my, my importance in looking after customers and giving them the very best and he gave me some great feedback and you know again that just gave me the confidence that those lessons i'd learned off my mum and from ray woods mike Ryder, and colin cross were going to stand me in good stead so it gave me a lot of self-belief that even though i wasn't academic I could still progress. Very insightful information and guidance from that gentleman. Now, you did eventually uh, take charge and you took charge at quite a quite high level. You eventually were responsible for 400 NatWest branches, three and a half thousand staff. Under your leadership, you also led the North, North Regional team to many internal and external awards, including the National Business Awards for Most Outstanding Workplace, judged by investors in people. You're also awarded Britain's Best Boss in 2008 and Sales Leader of the Year at the National Sales Award in 2009. What inherent qualities, Chris, did, did you possess for you to climb up the ladder so quickly? And how important was feedback for you during that process, and even now, actually? If, if, if I ask, if I answer the last question first, look, feedback's a gift, isn't it, right? And, and we all work in sport. People say feedback's the breakfast of champions. Um, I'm a huge fan of the model Jahari's window. Um, and, and actually, we've all got blind spots. We've all got them. And what feedback does 
is is get people to tell you what they enjoy and what they're doing well, and, and actually how you can be better. And that's why I love feedback. Uh, I think feedback uh, is what makes everyone better. And it's interesting, I, I love the phrase feedback. I hear people talk about constructive criticism. Uh, there's only one word you hear when you when you hear the phrase constructive criticism, and it's not constructive, is it? So I, I think feedback is a wonderful uh, phrase that I use. If you're doing it well, I'll give you feedback that you're doing it well. If I think I can help you doing it better, I'll give you feedback on how it, I can help you do it better. I, I think what, what I had, um, and it came to light when Dan Goldman brought it to the world's attention, I think I had some emotional intelligence. I think I could build relationships. Um, and, and if I had then some technical qualities, uh, I, I broke my leg quite badly playing football in my early 20s, and I sadly was never able to play again. But what, what I'd done before I broke my leg was get me coaching badges. Um, but it was prelim then. That's an, an intermediate. Um, that's how old I am. And actually what I realised when, you know, when I got the badges and I had two great uh, tutors, I had Dick Bate and I had Tony Whelan. Tony's, you know, one of the, you know, leading uh, coaches at Man United. And what, what I was able to do was look at the workplace and realise there was very few uh, coaches in the workplace. There were lots of managers, there were lots of people who'd bark orders or just absolute criticise. But there was no one that actually highlighted the positive nature of people's behaviours or their, their work. And I just went in there and ultimately, all, all I've ever been in every team I've led is head coach. Um, and I've wanted the team to do well. Uh, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. I want them to grow as individuals. I want them to get bigger jobs. I want to set a series of goals that we go out there and achieve uh, for our customers, for our colleagues, for our business for our community. And I want us to show people that we care, not just saying we care, but actually back that up. And, and I, I think that underpins my uh, career so far, which is there to support and help others achieve what their goals are. And in doing that, I've been fortunate along the way that uh, I've achieved some of my own. Mm. Well, Chris, after leaving NatWest Bank, you actually became the National Sales Director for, for British Gas which is yeah. a completely different industry. What did you implement that helped shape the way that British Gas went about doing the business? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, that, David. Uh, I, I wanted to prove that leadership was transferable. Um, uh, and from a technical perspective, going from being a, a, a banker to working in the central heating and installation division of British Gas, um, believe me, I, I know nothing about boilers. Right, Worcester Bosch R300 boiler with a telescopic flu. Uh, I could just about say it. Don't ask me to install one. But ultimately, I was responsible for putting, you know, a few hundred thousand in the homes of people throughout the UK. I wanted to prove that I could lead teams um, without the technical discipline. And, and I set about working with a great team in British Gas. And, and rather than overload ourselves with lots of mantras or the books of this and books of that, we talked about uh, three words that we wanted to define our existence as a team. And the mnemonic is P, P-E-A. And the P stands for professional. I said, when, when we get home at night, um, I want us to ask ourselves, have we been as professional as we could be? 
when we wake up in the morning, I want us to hold ourselves accountable for the rest of that day to be the most professional organisation and individuals and team, not just within British Gas, but outside of British Gas as well. The E stands for excellence. Basically, we were ripping up floorboards and, you know, sort of taking pipes away and putting pipes in. We were dealing with gas and electricity. So if we weren't obsessed with excellence, then ultimately we could um, really damage our brand, we could damage a customer, we could damage ourselves, we could damage our reputation. I've talked a lot about excellence. And, and the story I share with them is, I've worked in teams where people have said to me, but, but boss, we're, we're 96% on target, isn't that enough? Well, if, if people are happy with 96% success rate, I hope they never go uh, and work in an airport in packing parachutes. Because if you're only happy with 96% uh, when you're packing parachutes, you are basically consigning thousands of people to death and serious injury. And I said, I, I don't want anything um, to impact any customer. It's not about one, two percent. It's about real lives. And I just wanted a positive experience. So we talked a lot about excellence. And then the third is A. We talked about being admired. I wanted our team to be admired internally and admired externally by customers, by prospects. British gas fans were all over the road and my engineers were driving them. I didn't want us to jump amber lights. I wanted us to be polite and ask people if we could park on the drive. I wanted us to offer to wash up uh, the teacups and the coffee cups when the homeowners had, had, had made, made us the brews. And, and also, I wanted my team internally to be the team that helped all other parts of British Gas get better uh, and achieving their goals, again, for our customers. So I talked a lot about P, P-E-A, uh, professionalism, uh, excellence and being admired internally and externally and, and i've linked it since to um the mnemonic of pi by jack welsh jack talks about performance image and exposure to decision makers so ultimately i talk a lot now about pi and peace with the sp in success <laughs> so uh, so so it's simple to remember performance image exposure is your pi and being professional excellent and admired is your a and if you do that you'll get your s so that's pi and peace well, coming from a, a northern lad from Manchester, it's pretty easy to remember that as well, isn't it? Uh, funny enough, the, the lads from Wigan who I work with the rugby league, they remember the pie and peas really easily. Because as you know, the, the Wigan, the Wigan as in rugby league are known as the pie eaters and uh, long may it continue. Best pies around. <laughs> so, Chris, the British gas experience was obviously a, a great one in regards to you wanting leadership to be transferable. You then moved on from British Gas in 2011 to become the managing director for Metro Bank. Yeah. Now, Metro Bank at the time was the first new bank in the UK for over 100 years. And during that four years as the bank's managing director, you grew the business into a multi-billion pound company. How... And what was it that you did to help grow customers' confidence and have people believe that this was the right place to be? Yeah, well, firstly, um, I can take uh, none of the credit. Uh, we just had some outstanding people that, that had a real cause. You know, 
people fight for a right, but they're prepared to die for a cause. And we have people that wanted to revolutionise banking. You know, we, we, we looked at it very differently from traditional banks. Um, we, we, we looked at it outside in. And what do I mean by that? A lot of businesses are inside out businesses. They, they sit inside their business and they choose what the customer's going to get, even if the customer doesn't want it. And I, and I think that's completely the wrong way to run a business. So we wanted to look at it outside in. So we would step across the road every day, the leadership team, and we'd say, if we were customers today, what do we see? We're on the outside. When we walk in, what do we want? And as a result of that, we, we our opening hours were 8 in the morning to 8 at night, Monday to Friday, 8 till 6 on a Saturday, 11 till 5 on a Sunday, and we opened on bank holidays. And you have to think about that. Even now, banks, traditional banks, don't open on bank holidays. They don't open on Sundays. We wanted to be convenient. So if a customer who was working during the week couldn't get into the bank, well, they come at weekend. But the other banks were shut. We put customer toilets in, in every Metro Bank store. We put baby changing facilities in every Metro Bank store. You print your cards in store at Metro Bank. So, you know, if somebody's car breaks and, and they're with a traditional bank, they have to wait three to five days. That's bonkers. So we wanted to really think about the customer experience. And ultimately, because of what we delivered, and we've delivered drive-through banks, we let dogs in, we give free dog biscuits, we give free lollipops. We're just a, a completely different way because we see it from the point of the customer. And if there's two interesting stories to show that the other banks really haven't learned, we answer the phone with real life human beings. Other banks still have automated voice response. Never in history has a customer ever written to a telecoms company or a bank and said, I'm bored with people answering the phone immediately. Can you please install an automated voice response system that keeps me waiting for 30 minutes and says, due to an exceptionally high number of calls, we can't answer your call? It's absolute bollocks. It means you don't want to pay people to answer your call. And secondly, this is one, why do traditional banks chain pens down? I can't. I can only think of one reason. They must think all the people that come in are thieves. It's a, a Metro Bank, we gave away pens. We gave them people. We walked down the high street and gave small businesses boxes of pens with Metro Bank's name on it because we wanted to get our brand out there. Traditional banks chain them down. It's bonkers. And that's, that for me is the explanation of the difference between inside out, the company deciding what the customer's going to get, whether they like it or not, and outside in that says, um, what is it our customers want from us? And it's our job to deliver it. So Metro Bank was uh, a huge part of my life. Um, I'm so proud to have been part of it. And when I see uh, Metro Banks opened in Manchester, uh, in Sheffield, in Cardiff, uh, as well as our start point, which was in and around London, then I'm hugely proud. And uh, I've got a lot of people that are still there that, are still wanting to revolutionise the industry and put customers at the heart of everything. Chris, just share, share that little story that you share with me, actually, about the, the young woman who came in with a, a baby. Yeah. And in regards to, to care. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I think I said, Keith, um, there's a lot of people who say they care, but then quite the behaviours don't quite uh, match up. So I, I was always passionate with my teams that said, 
I don't want you to just care. I want you to show you care. I want you to show you care for yourself because I want a healthy you. I want you to care and show that you care for your colleagues. So be a good teammate. I want you to care and show that you care for your customers because ultimately without them we don't have a business and we don't get paid. And then care and show that you care for your community. So I'm a great believer in uh, corporate citizenship and then care and show that you care for your business. But that's the last bit. And I think the story you're alluding to is um, we wanted to show we cared by, by opening till eight o'clock at night. And because we printed cards in store, uh, a lady was due to go on holiday the next day. And she phoned our Croydon store up at quarter to eight at night and said, my card's not working. Um, I want to come and uh, get a new one from you. Um, what time do you close? And we, we said, we'll close whenever you get here and we'll close um, whenever you leave. So you, we'll wait open. Now she arrived about 8.30 with a young child and she said, oh, I've been really fretting over this. And the, the, the young child was getting a bit distressed because they've not eaten. So uh, one of my Metrobank colleagues went to McDonald's and bought the child a Happy Meal. Um, and then because it was dark, um, we walked back the lady and, and a child to the car park and we actually paid the car park fee because at Metrobank, we had a culture of surprise and delight. So ultimately, we only ever closed the store when the last customer left. Um, and we made sure that we were always looking for ways of, of making our customers uh, understand that we not only cared, but we showed that we cared. And, and, and that's, that's folklore in, you know, Croydon, Bromley, Sutton. You know, those stories got around the whole of the business. Um, we're always looking for ways, therefore, um, to show that we cared, didn't just put it out there on a press statement or a glossy magazine. Mm, that's quite a compelling story. Unfortunately, we don't have, there's plenty of space for more of that. There's no doubt Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. So, you know, some of the, you've worked in some very high-powering positions and businesses, Chris, and one of the current projects that you're, you're working on, you chair uh, the company entrusted to deliver the Rugby League World Cup, which is going to be held in, Octo in October in England, 2021. How is the project shaping up? Uh, give us a little bit of an update on that. And what are the project values? Because it appears values are very near and dear to you. Well, it's, it's, it's going really well. Uh, it's, it's not been without its challenges, as you can imagine. Uh, again, I'm blessed with an outstanding executive team uh, run by John Dutton. Uh, and, and we've got an outstanding board that is really supportive. So we've had to rewrite the budgets a few times. We've had to talk to the International Rugby League, who hold the rights. We've had to talk to the BBC about scheduling, because all 61 games will be on the BBC. Um, and we're looking for uh, a good chunk of that to be live on BBC One or BBC Two. Uh, we, so we've already got uh, the England games and the semi-finals and final guaranteed to be on. The finals are double-header. It's a men's final and a women's final at uh, Old Trafford, Manchester. Uh, we're also uh, running a wheelchair rugby league World Cup, and that will be played uh, the, the final the previous evening uh, in Liverpool. And we're going to have a physical disability rugby league tournament. So, so when we talked about what is it we want, we, we want it to be the best ever World Cup. But we've got four values. Firstly, it's bold and brave. We're looking to try and sell 
750,000 tickets. And the last time the World Cup was held in this country, uh, we broadly sold about 430,000. So it's a much bigger World Cup. We're playing at grounds like St. James's Park, Newcastle, uh, Middlesbrough, uh, Sheffield United, Bramall Lane. Uh, we're playing at Arsenal, Emirates. We'll be the first ever non-football game. Uh, to be seen at the Emirates, although some Arsenal fans have told me there's been many a day when no football was played at the Emirates, <laughs> even though there were people on the pitch. Um, and we're also playing at Coventry, because Coventry is the city of culture. So we're bold and brave. Our, 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 one of our values is bold and brave. We're also talking about being inclusive. When we talk about uh, wheelchair and league, people think it's a disability sport. It's not. It just means it's played in a wheelchair. And what's great is uh, that there are two brothers for England. One who sadly lost his legs uh, as a child, but he played, plays with his brother who's able-bodied. And it's the only sport where you can play together, either able-bodied uh, with somebody who's not. We've also got a woman in the same team. So when we talk about being inclusive, that means an awful lot for us. We're paying participation fees for wheelchair uh, athletes and female athletes, something that's never been done before. Uh, we've equalised prize money uh, between men, women uh, and wheelchair. Again, that's the first uh, for many sports, not just our own. So we, we talk about that. We want to be world-class. That's why we're at world-class venues. We want world-class experience for our customers. We want it to be digital so people can access us really easily and quickly. And if you look at our website, there's some great examples of that. And then ultimately, because rugby league is a northern sport, we want it to be authentic. Um, that's why we're playing the majority in the games of the north of England. Uh, you know, 125 years ago, um, it, rugby league was founded because it was broke away from the rugby union. Um, and we are an authentic sport. We're in, innovative but authentic. Um, and as I say, over 80% of the games being played in the cool north, the northern powerhouse, whatever you want. And we want to showcase the north of England for being the great place it is. Um, and those are our four values, bold and brave, inclusive, authentic and world-class. We're both excited for it. Um, big rugby fans, of course. So I know in the, uh, in the last World Cup, England got very, very close to winning the first World Cup that it ever would have won. So as well as obviously the, the event, being a great success, let's hope that that uh, the England teams get some success too, which I'm sure they will. Um, but it, it that sounds great, Chris. Now, as well as that, you're also actively involved in in many other projects. Yeah. Can you briefly share what some of the projects are, and in every project that you're actually involved in, what's the common denominator for you? Uh, the, the common denominator, David, is, 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 is helping others. Uh, as I say, I come from a pretty tough background and uh, my job is to help others. I, re I really want to help others, uh, perhaps, uh, who are in a similar, situa similar situation to me. I went back to my old high school uh, and I did a presentation called Dreams Are Free um, because uh, I didn't want anybody thinking because they'd gone to a particular school or they came from a single-parent family. Um, that, that it was going to be uh, an issue for them to succeed in, in later life. So I'm, I'm involved with Switch the Play. Switch the Play is a charity that helps uh, athletes transition. I think it's really tough when you uh, come out of sport 
Sometimes people have issues with identity. Um, they sometimes have some financial issues or relationship issues. So switch to play helps people um, in sport because you never quite know when your career is going to end. You know, we, we all know people that perhaps have been released from football academies at the ages of 16, 17 and think the world's over. We want to show that that's not the case. Uh, sometimes your career can end suddenly because of injury. I know mine did. And then sometimes you have a wonderful career of 10, 15, 20 years, but you just don't get that last contract and then you're out there in the wide world. So switch to play is important about helping others. I also uh, am a non-exec uh, director of Her Spirit. If you actually look at activity levels in this country, uh, women, uh, women activity levels fall behind men's. And that can be significant, particularly when you get into hard to reach communities. So Her Spirit was founded by two brilliant people, Mel Berry and Holly Woodford, uh, in terms of giving women the opportunity uh, to, to really get better. Um, uh, we call it mind, body and fuel, to help them um, have good self-belief, to actually get them to understand that part of being uh, healthy is good food and good, good food habits. And then actually um, getting out there and just not necessarily running marathons. You might be walking to a lamppost and then walking back home. And tomorrow you walk to two lampposts and walk back home. And the day after you do three and eventually you'll do a circuit. So her spirit's really important. Manchester County Football Association, I played for them as a youth in their youth team. Uh, so still putting back into that is really, really important. And actually, because I'm keen on leadership, uh, I'm a board member of the Professional Body for Sports Leadership, founded by Tom Sears. And that's about ha having some good access to uh, other people who've had a good career in sport that can act as maybe a bit of a mentor um, and actually help people understand how to progress in the world of sport, dealing with difficult situations. So I, I, I love being busy. Um, I love being around positive people. I love being around people that uh, are reaching out, uh, looking to be supported. Um, and it just goes back to my, my, my sort of coaching ethos, really. So, yeah, uh, lots of things. But somebody once said, um, if you do what you love in life, uh, it's never, it's never ever considered work, is it? And I, I love what I do and uh, long may it continue. I can tell from the, the passion and the way you talk about it. Now, when do you sleep? <laughs> I, have, I have my hours sleep. The one thing I don't do, David, is I don't waste time. Time is really precious, isn't it? A lot, a lot of people balance the bank account um, and, and, and worry about the money. I, I have a, a real concern of how I consume time. And I, I don't waste time and I don't let people waste my time. Because if, if that happens, I'm not able to give it to people that do deserve and want my time. Mm -hmm. So you'll rarely, um, you'll rarely, rarely see me watching crap TV. So if anyone ever says, Chris, can you fill me in on Love Island? Um, I haven't got a clue. And I couldn't tell you what's happening in Coronation Street or EastEnders either. Because it just isn't my way of relaxing. And I've never, ever learned how to be a better version of me through watching those sort of programmes. So you might catch me watching sport and learning from that. You'll certainly catch me watching documentaries and listening to audio books and podcasts like this one, because I think there's a great opportunity to learn from them. And uh, if I'm not doing, I like to be learning. Yeah. Now, talking about projects, Chris, there's, there's another project that you're involved in, which is an elite sports business 
mentor project where you work in the EAM program, which is the Elite Academy Managers program. What does that role consist of for yourself? Yeah, if I just put a bit of context into it, David, um, it's, uh, I think the Premier League do an outstanding job um, in supporting the uh, academies, and, and rightly so, because uh, whilst we've got some world-class players in uh, the first teams of football now, actually having people that come through uh, to become the, the, the stars of the future, like Marcus Rashford, and you know some of the great work you do, Keith, and have done for the FA in growing coaches and growing talent, what, what the Premier League do really well is they, they look at the academy managers and ask the question, how can we best support you? And, and what academy managers typically do naturally well is, is the football side of things. But as you get um, further up the, the, the ladder within the elite academy manager programme, you tend to spend less time on the pitch and a bit more time having to organise schedules. You have to look at budgets. You have to deal with some... Um, difficult situations maybe with parents and stuff like that so so because I've got a business background I'm privileged to be allocated a group of elite academy managers to work with them on building their business knowledge um, and typically I use the balanced business scorecard which is help them understand the financials help them understand some of the processes help them understand how to lead people, um, their own people, their other coaches and other support team. And then also uh, their customers, in effect, the, the young children and young people that uh, attend the academy. So it's just great looking at some of the traditional business models and working with them. So, you know, I, I, I get to learn as well by observing some of these great uh, academy managers doing what they do. So I'll take some ideas back for my other businesses. So it really is um, a, a real highlight of uh, my, my week and my month when I get, um, I get out there and work with them. And it's very evident that even for yourself that has already achieved so much and is constantly pushing and doing new projects that the learning process never stops. And for me, I find it really interesting as somebody that is heavily involved in sport and business as well, that from your standpoint, there's crossover between the two. And even though for you being very successful in the business field, you're taking things from these people in sports as well as providing a massive amount for them. And I, I really do think that there is a, a huge crossover between sports and business in how you deal with people, how you treat people and, Really, you've mentioned the word so many times already in, in this podcast is that you care about people. And, and, and that's got to be the job of a coach, um, which is, you know, is all about serving others. Uh, and, and it's fascinating that, you know, I, I learned so much from both that I then bring into both. And, you know, a really quick example is uh, when you break down an, an elite athlete performance, whether that's uh, jumping in a pool or uh, playing football. Actually, if you break down what they do, they warm up before the event, they then have a period of peak performance, they then warm down, and then, then have quality recovery time. And when I, when I realised that from sport, the first thing I did was go back to, to the team I was leading and say, if we're ever going to go into meetings, what's our equivalent? So how would we warm up for a meeting? And how would we prepare for it? Secondly, when we're in the meeting, what's our equivalent of peak performance? How would we know if we were peak performing? 
And then before we leave the meeting, how do we warm down? How do we get the actions understood and set, set about getting those actions completed? And then what's our quality recovery time? And as a result of that, I, you know, I don't have back-to-back -back meetings. I have quality recovery time between every meeting, and that might be going to the bathroom, it might be to get a drink or refuel in some way, it might be to get a fresh air. But as soon as I saw that, warm-up, peak performance, warm-down, quality recovery time in sport, first thing I did, bring it into every team, and that's how we approach our team meetings. And funnily enough, the meetings go really well, uh, things get done, and people are actually able to have more quality recovery time. So when I was at NatWest, I refused to allow people to email between six o'clock at night and eight o'clock in the morning because I wanted my teams to have quality recovery time and quality time with their families. Why? Because I wanted to show that I cared about people outside of the workplace. Um, so therefore, I wanted the home life to be vibrant and effective. So yeah, lots of lessons from sport are brought into business. Well, lots of lessons from business are brought into sport. So you're absolutely right, David. Lots of crossover. So, Chris, when you've worked with or going in to work with other individuals, teams, businesses, they're not all going to be running efficiently. They're not all going to be effective. There'll be lots of things that are taking place that are, if you like, dysfunctional. Yeah. So, how do you go about working with talented talented businesses individuals and and teams they're underperforming yeah I, I'll, I'll defer to the wonderful humphrey walters here um it was humphrey walters talks about what's our cause first things he asks uh, and ultimately sometimes uh, individuals within teams think more about themselves than they do about the cause or the team so whenever I go into any business, I sit down and I ask that first question, you know, what, what's our cause? The second question then Humphrey Walters asks, and I ask it as well, is let's talk about pride in the badge. Because the, the, the badge is important. You know, I'm a Manchester United fan and, you know, when you talk about uh, fighting for a right and dying for a cause, uh, I wasn't alive at the time, but I know everything about Munich. I know that our players gave their lives. Why? Because there was a common cause. And that was to become the first English team to win the European Cup. And Matt Busby himself nearly lost his life. Um, and then 10 years later, when we won the European Cup, Matt Busby dedicated it to those players that had lost their lives in Munich. And again, I wasn't born, but every United fan of a certain age tells me about Duncan Edwards. And sadly, Duncan uh, lost his life. So, so I get teams to understand what's our cause and get us behind that. I also understand the pride in the badge. And then the third one is every team I go into, I always uh, facilitate a team code. What's our behavioral code? And, and what, what we hold ourselves accountable? So I've shared with you P from my British gas days. Um, so, so often it's reminded those talented individuals that they're part of something bigger. And again, if you look back at Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson, if you were a great player, but you didn't have great behaviours, you got to play somewhere else. And, you know, there were some high-profile players that were very talented. But because they put themselves before the team, they got to leave. And, and I'm a great believer in that. I'll give everybody the opportunity to play for the shirt. But if you want to play for yourself, 
go and play somewhere else. And at Metrobank, we called it FIFO. It stands for fit in or fuck, go away. So, and, 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 that's, and that's really important. When, you, when you're part of something special, you, you can't allow one individual to ruin it for everybody else. So I do sit there. Clive Woodward also has got a great phrase. He asks people whether they're teachable. And if you're teachable, he'll work with you. If you're not, he won't. Um, and, and, and those are some of the key principles for me when I start looking at teams, which is there's usually a, a, a wider cause than, than just your own. And, and if we win, we all win. And that's what we'd celebrate. So that, that for me is our work with uh, dysfunctional teams. I guess it pretty much dovetails my next question really links quite nicely with it, uh, with your previous uh, answers is, what do you believe to be the key ingredients, the trademark behaviours of a successful leader? And obviously you spoke of Nat West and British Gas when you were there. What are, the, what are those trademark behaviours and do they hit you straight in the eye as soon as you see them? Is it something that can be manifested? Or is it something that you can sometimes have to pie it off? It's just not going to happen. I go back. Okay, I go back to why you're teachable. If if you're teachable and flexible, then you'll be successful. When you think you know it all, I I, I, I can't help you anymore. And there's a great phrase, isn't it? When the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. Um, and, and I sit down and talk about how we can all be better at who we are and what we do, whether that's outcomes or whether that's behaviours. Uh, none of us are perfect, none of us ever will be, therefore let's seek to be better. Uh, and, and success can be defined in many, many different ways and I always want to sit down with an individual or a team and say what would success look like for you? Um, my job is to facilitate and help that. Uh, and for some people they're motivated by money and status, many people aren't. Many people who work in grassroots sports and charity are motivated by helping others um, because they're never going to make the riches out of being in that. And, and therefore, it's sitting down with people going, if you want to be helped, I can help you. If you don't, then I'll go and use my time with somebody that does. And, and it, that's for me the start point. So I contract with people right at the outset. What is it you want from me? And this is what I expect from you. And, and we always, we're overt about that and therefore we can always refer back to it. If any of us, either me or the people I'm working with, we, we move away from our key values. So I'm a great believer in contracting. Now, Chris, during your career, you've had to make extremely big decisions. And the art of decision making, it can be a very challenging one especially when at times you don't really know what it is you're going into. Yeah. For you personally, what is it that lets you know you've made or are making the right decision? Wow, what a great question. Firstly, I spend a lot of time looking around corners. I think one of the jobs of leaders is to look around corners. So asking people, what, what is it we know about the future? Because I'd rather be fully informed walking into the future. Because I think the best decisions are the ones that are fully informed. 
So I talk a lot about opinion, experience and evidence. A lot of people make statements based on their opinion. Well, your opinions are formed in many, many different ways. I heard somebody the other day at the petrol station, you know, giving his opinion. But sadly, it was miles away from the truth. Um, it was factually incorrect. Now, your opinion could be based on what newspaper you read. If you read the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail in this country, you'd think you're on another planet, right? But it's still a newspaper in this country, but it's opinion. Then people say, well, it happened to me. But if you're the only person on the planet it happened to, it doesn't mean other people are experiencing that. So therefore, let's see if there's any evidence. So when I look at big decisions, I look to see, first of all, is there any evidence? Are there any experts that are better than me at understanding the issue we've got? And can I seek to understand uh, what, what it is they would do? So again, lessons from business are, um, if there's a level of sensitivity and complexity, get some people around the table that know what they're talking about, outline the problem statement, and see how we can work well together to come up with a solution based on some evidence. And of course, there might be some opinion in there, there might be some experience, but is there some evidence? And again, can you anticipate issues arising? If you can, the decisions are often uh, easier. So we, we know what we want to achieve as outcomes, we then look to the decision-making process. We look to having the right people in the room and then we look to execute brilliantly. Fantastic response. What great advice as well. Now, when you've been working in high-performance environments, Chris, what do great leaders, what do they need to do to stay great? Just have that learning approach. Uh, I've been blessed to look at some great people that just continue to learn whether that's you know re reading the, the book that you two have written Goldust you know I, I think it's just a great book and I, I, I learned stuff just by flicking through it when, when I opened it uh, in the post uh, the, the whole questions not statements stuff so I think great leaders uh, continue to learn they never get complacent but they're always um, Clive Woodward again talks about your brain he said it's either a sponge or a rock. And, 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 and I, I believe the great leaders have sponges for brains. So they're prepared to listen, they're prepared to learn, they're prepared to explore other people's views, even if at the outset they don't necessarily agree with it. So they're tolerant. And I call it the beach ball. When I was a kid, I played with a beach ball that was half red, half white. And some people only want to see the red bit. Some people always want to see the white bit. Great leaders walk around the beach ball because they realise that it's red and white. So therefore, they're flexible in the thinking. And that's what I always look for, for, for me, for great leaders. Flexible thinking, desire to have a, a lifetime of learning. Well, Chris, you've, I had another two questions lined up for you there and you've just answered them in that previous one because it was around becoming an effective leader and what would be up or high up on your list of the qualities of an effective leader and you answered it in the last question absolutely tremendous i told you david i told you you should look around corners that's what i was trying to do is that your opinion experience or evidence 
Well, there's, there's lots of evidence um, around people that look into the future. I mean, and it's not that difficult for a business person to look at. I remember seeing a guy called Jack Black, and I don't mean the actor. What about the guy that really understands how your brain works? And in 1996, he did a presentation that I've just repeated, and I always give him the credit. And he talked about the future in 1996. And he said, there are three revolutions going on. He said, in every meeting you have with your team, you should always talk about these three revolutions. The first one was technology revolution. 1996, the iPhone hadn't even been invented. And he said, technology will transform our lives. If you embrace it, it will enable you to be a better performer. If you resist it, it'll, de it'll define you in a way that you don't want to be defined. The second one was the consumer revolution. And they started talking about consumer revolution. Consumers will have more power than ever before. The way we consume goods and services will be different. And that's before the internet had really got going. Now people do their shopping online. They, they can spend billions of pounds on Christmas Day because next have done the sale because it's online even though the shop's shut. And during the pandemic, we'd have been lost without, as consumers, we'd have been lost without the technology. Then the third one is the world order. And the coronavirus is an example of the world order changing. It's because um, things happen to you and you've got to get around it. So I think that there is evidence there that says those people looking to the future uh, are often less severely impacted than those that don't look into the future and think every day is going to be this lovely flat road without any bumps and any zigzags. Well, life isn't that simple. It'll always have bumps in the road. And that's why resilience of getting up when you've fallen over is really important for me. I've fallen over lots of times. I just have to keep getting back up. That's life. And there's that element in there as well, Chris, of being able to adjust and adapt to change. That change is happening. Whether you like it or not, it's coming. And how are you able to adjust? How are you able to adapt to go, you know what? It's happening. I can ride the wave and get on it and make the most of what's coming or I'll resist it and there's a good chance that I might get left behind and whether it be sporting environment or a business environment or even in personal life that you get left behind and everybody else is, has gone into the future like Jack Black mentioned with those three things that funnily enough from 96 are now so prevalent in what's going on in everyday life. Yeah, and, and, and again, I, you know, I, I took Jack's, um, Jack's sentiments and I've carried on, I've, I've executed it. Look, this, you know, the, the, the phrase adapt or die, you know, I, I've heard that lots and lots of times. And, you know, there's, there's some organisations that have been huge. I remember Woolworths on the high street, right? They were there, they were massive, right? But where are they now? Well, they didn't adapt. I look at Blockbuster. I used to get my, my, when my kids were growing up, we'd be in Blockbuster every Saturday night getting a video. And, and there's one left on the planet, it's a museum. Why? Because Netflix came along. You know, I used to book a holiday in a travel agent on the high street. There's none left. Why? Well, because I'm a consumer and I can book online, then I'll choose my own flights that suit me. I'll choose my own hotel. I'll, I'll choose my own travel uh, sort of option when I get there. So, so you're absolutely right. You either embrace change and use it as a positive, or you can deny it. And it'll just consume you and define you. And it, it will not be a positive experience. So, Chris, the, there's many things that are about actually help shape and define who you are. 
Now, at 19, you wrote a mission statement. Would you mind sharing what, what you wrote on that? And how has yeah. it shaped who you are and what you've become? Well, I'm a great believer in personal mission statements. Uh, and I'm an even bigger believer in putting them out to the world. Because when you put it out to the world, you've got to live it. So, you know, it really holds yourself accountable. So mine was to consistently deliver outstanding results and develop winners in life. I wanted to be consistent in both my outcomes and my behaviours. Uh, I wanted a reputation for deliver. I've been in lots of meetings where people talk a good game, but actually don't deliver. I didn't want that. I wanted a reputation for execution. I wanted to choose to be outstanding because I think outstanding is a choice. Um, I think you can be mediocre without trying. That's just not who I am. It's not how my mum brought me up. And then ultimately, we are defined by results in life, whether we like it or not. Even at school, you get results. Even at work, you get results. So I decided to embrace results. But how did I want to do it? I wanted to develop winners in life. I've been blessed with mentors and coaches that have had faith in me and developed me. So I wanted to do that and pass it on. And then these three pictures, because some people think in pictures as well as uh, understand the words. And the three pictures are uh, crossing the line first. I like to win, make no apologies for it. I like to win in style and like to win the right way, but I still like to win because I think winners set new standards. The second one is three arrows at the bullseye, which is my obsession with excellence. And I spoke about that earlier in the parachute packers. So, um, you know, anybody can hit one good shot, but being consistent is hitting the bullseye time after time after time. And that's a sign of excellence. And then the final picture is the one that means the most to me. And it's the one that I, I can never give up. Um, and that's somebody at the top of a mountain helping somebody at the bottom of a mountain up. And if you're part of a team and you're doing well, instead of running around celebrating, see if you can help the person that isn't doing as well as you. Um, and that for me is all about helping and caring and showing that care and coaching. So that's my personal mission statement. Uh, it's at the bottom of every email. It's the first slide I show at every presentation because I want people to know what I stand for and know that, that I'm going to give it my very, very shot, best shot to, to live every one of those values. Well, in the past hour or so, Chris, it's been very evident of what you stand for and what it is you want to achieve. And in all the questions, pretty much every one of them, you've gone back to one of the same things about helping others. And not just you being at the top of the mountain, achieving, but lifting other people up, sometimes pulling them up, sometimes pushing them to be the best version of themselves. And it's, it's just, this is really has been brilliant. Now, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, Chris, how can they get hold of you? Uh, the easiest way, David, Keith, is, is through LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn because that's how I build connections and network and that's how I learn um, th through, through that, that, that social media. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. You won't find me on those. Um, but yeah, more than happy to, to, to answer any questions and connect with people uh, via LinkedIn. If you just mention that they've... Uh, heard me uh, on this Golders podcast um, that'll help me uh, verify uh, that I'll accept it if a lot of people 
try and get me on LinkedIn that want to sell me something. So if people are listening, if they just mention uh, Goldust, then I'll, I'll accept and connect. Wonderful. Chris, it's been, a, it's been a real privilege having you with us. We've thoroughly enjoyed a short time together. It's been very insightful and you've shared lots of depth behind how you go about doing what you do. And that is, you're asking a lot of questions. And I think one of the, one of the major keys in life is, one of the easy things is to ask questions. One of the greatest qualities is actually listening to the response. And you've done that and you've been very graceful and uh, very artful in how you've uh, responded to, to our time today. So thank you ever so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, look, the, 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 the privilege is mine. It's, um, it's, it's a great book uh, that you both have written. And for me to, to, to be invited onto the podcast is uh, highlight of the year so far. So uh, thanks for some great questions. I know you've given them some thoughts. Um, and it's just great. So uh, can't wait to meet you in person when we're allowed. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more, or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also, you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>